Hello, welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and in case you haven't noticed, we're in the middle of a massive protest movement right now. In response to the brutal murder of George Floyd and countless other African Americans at the hands of law enforcement, there's been an outpouring of protest and unrest around this country, unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. And let me remind you, it's also happening in the middle of a historic goddamn pandemic. In every major city in America, protesters are going toe-to-toe with cops who have responded with disturbing violence, attacking peaceful protesters with tear gas and rubber bullets, and using tactics that seem designed to escalate conflict rather than de-escalate it. And at the same time, we've seen massive peaceful protests be followed in many cases by arson and looting. These images of violence have resulted in a frantic, even somewhat obsessive concern in the media and some segments of the public with what the, quote, right way to protest is. And that's a hard question to answer. I mean, we can't even figure out if posting a black square on Instagram in solidarity is good or bad. So the question of what role violence plays in protest is even more, well, incendiary. Will the violence only obstruct the message of the peaceful activists? Or does it serve a purpose in bringing about change? Well, we spent the week scrambling to bring you this special emergency edition of Factually. And believe it or not, we have found the perfect person in America to talk to us about this topic today. Our guest has devoted his life to studying protests in America. He knows everything about what causes them, how they work, and how they have changed society. His name is Daniel Gillian, and he's a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's written a number of award-winning articles and books on subjects of political protest, racial and ethnic inequality, and America's political discourse on race. And most recently, he's the author of a book that seems perfectly timed for the moment. It's entitled The Loud Minority, Why Protests Matter in American Democracy. He has an immense knowledge of American protest, both violent and nonviolent, and he has an optimistic analysis of what's going on this week that I found really settling and inspiring to hear, and I think you will too. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Please welcome Daniel Gillian. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So you're a political scientist. You study protest movements, uh, their history, their efficacy. Uh, I think you're the perfect person (laughs) for us to talk to uh, this week. Uh, I want to know, first of all, what are you thinking when you're seeing what's happening uh, in the streets in America right now? What is your reaction to it? My reaction about these protests is really sort of conflicting. You know, I live in Philadelphia, West Philly. I walk down the streets. I see some of the minority-owned businesses that have been looted. My heart goes out to some of those individuals. Um, but... I'm also hopeful you see young individuals marching, and not just in one or two cities, throughout the nation, asking for change. And in my opinion, that is just phenomenal. So I'm I'm hopeful for a better tomorrow, while at the same time dealing with the sort of messiness in which protest has taken place. Well, so let's talk about... uh... Let's talk about this because, you know, you mentioned the looting. Uh, Obviously, we've seen that. We've seen what is has been described as violence on the part of the protesters, on the part of the police, uh, all of that. I'd like to know, first of all, before we talk about your feelings about what's happening on the ground right now, you've studied 
what the differences are between violent and nonviolent protests and uh, their efficacy and and the effect that they tend to have. And how do you think about that? What are the differences between those historically? If I look at this from a historical perspective, in an objective perspective, protests, both nonviolent and violent, has the ability to influence government to influence policies, to influence electoral outcomes. And you can look at protests at any time period. We go back to the 60s when we saw violence occurring in those protests in 67, 68, but even in 64 and 63, you saw a response from government. You go to Rodney King riot protests. After those protests in 92, we saw a response. Maxine Waters is putting forth policies as well as other individuals in government. Bush first comes out and makes statements recognizing the hardships of the black community, talking about racial and ethnic inequality in ways he hadn't spoken before. So protest has this ability to have an influence, whether it is violent or nonviolent. Now we can get into various sorts of discussions of what do we mean by violence? Are we talking yeah. about rioting and looting? Um, or are we talking about violence being imposed upon protesters? You know, take John mm -hmm. Lewis, for example. He has skull fractures from walking across the Edmonds Pettus Bridge. That was definitely a violent protest. But individuals mm -hmm. uh, aren't saying, hey, that's violent. Well, it's just because the protesters aren't doing the violence, but violence is being put upon them for sure. And it had the ability to awaken the nation to bring urgency to an issue. Yeah, uh, I saw Nicole Hannah-Jones, who I've had on a previous incarnation of this podcast, wrote on Twitter a really helpful thread, I thought, which talked about how uh, those protests, the uh, the one that you mentioned, um, were specifically about almost attracting violence, about like putting themselves in harm's way in order to create that urgency and draw that attention, and that that's a violent protest in a way too we don't you know we thought we think about uh when people say oh peaceful protesting is the way to go that doesn't necessarily mean a a quiet protest where nobody is hurt and nothing is destroyed right because even in martin luther king's time that i mean those protests were violent in their way absolutely you listen to king talk actually about birmingham and he said what he wanted to do was create a crisis situation there because that would bring individuals to the table. He followed up mm. by saying that he does not advocate for violence, but that crisis, that chaotic situation um, leads to people coming to the table and talking about these issues. And that's uh, 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 important. I should also say that many individuals in the media have characterized these protests, the George Floyd protests, as being just completely chaotic in ways that has never happened before. And the reality is, is that if you look at the 1960s, it was not a completely peaceful cotton candy eating celebration, right. um, uh, you know, or a very orderly thing. It, it, it just wasn't. Uh, you had elements of the movement that were very violent and elements that were um, nonviolent. And, and, and it just, I become disheartened when I hear people talk about this particular movement, a movement that's not neat, nice, it's not cookie cutter, um, but it's raw, it's emotional, and it's very reminiscent of the past, and, and, and I think it will be successful. 
So you're saying that when people are saying this, uh, this is a brand new type of violent protest we've never seen before in America. That's not that's not true. That's not historically accurate to what the civil rights movement that we were all taught about in school uh, was, because it, it, it is resembles this more than we think. Absolutely. We've seen this movie before. And, and, and we're watching it again. We've seen violence in protests. We've seen rioting and looting take place in protests. And when you look at these protests today, you see those protests, the, vi- the violent rioting, looting um, protests alongside peaceful protests. In 92, with the Rodney King riots, you saw the same sort of violent protests alongside peaceful protests. We're really creating a dichotomy that doesn't exist. It's not an mm. either or. Either you're gonna have the violent aspect of protest or you're gonna have the peaceful aspect of protest. And the reality is, is that they literally walk right alongside each other. Uh, and so if you look at protest the way that it is, if you take it uh, on its face value from what we see, um, the reality is is that it's it's influential. It's able to influence government based on just the simple fact of being both violent and nonviolent. Well, wow. I mean, so this just contrasts in a way with what I've been taught about protest movements, I, I feel, for my whole life. You know, when I was, you know, I grew up in a, in a white suburb in Long Island. You know, we learned the history of the civil rights movement uh, to the degree that we did, right? I've learned much yeah. more about it as an adult since, <laughs> but I got the yeah. mainstream American, white American education with the civil rights movement. And we yeah. also, I remember, had units on, on Gandhi, for instance, right? Yeah. And the thing that there's almost this religious aspect put upon the nonviolent protest. And I remember hearing that message from my social studies teacher in like sixth grade saying, see, you don't need violence to do these things, right? Nonviolent resistance, passive resistance is, hey, that's the way to go. That is the true monkish uh, dedication to peace. Um, And that's the most effective thing, right? And and I believe that for so long because it really feels like you can have your cake and eat it too. Well, if by being nonviolent, you can actually do even more, <laughs> right? Well, that's that's better. But uh, yeah, I mean, what you're what you're describing runs counter to that in ways that, frankly, at this moment, make more sense to me. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. You know, if you look at some of the scholars that talk about violence, and you look at some of their research, you know, there's one scholar um, who measures violence by whether or not individuals were arrested at a protest event. Mm. Well, I mean, if you look at racial and ethnic minority protests over time, the majority of protests involve someone being arrested. And so does that mean the majority of racial and ethnic minority protests are unsuccessful or counterproductive? Well, of course not. They are able to increase the saliency in the urgency of this issue. And, and, you know, this is not to say that nonviolence is not successful. It is. Um, but if you sit down and literally measure protest activity, which I have done, and I've literally sat down and traced protest activity from 1960 to the day, looking at how it affects bills being passed, presidents talking, Supreme Court justices wow. deciding to take cases and electoral outcomes. It is objectively influential, both 
violent and nonviolent protests. And, and I think that's the key here is that much of the research, much of the discussion is engaged in from a substantive uh, theoretical uh, perspective as opposed to an objective empirical perspective in which individuals are actually tracking this information with data and not just for one year or one election or even one decade, but over time, you'll see that there's this influence that's, that's, that's indisputable. Wow. And so when you're actually looking at it empirically, you're looking at the data, violent protest has an impact on policy in a different way or to a larger degree than nonviolent protest does? Or how do you put violent it? Violent protest adds urgency to Mm. Violent, I mean, to, to nonviolent protests. So when, mm. when, when you have nonviolent protests, people are aware and that does get individuals to come to the table and to try and pass, um, policies, but that might take a while. It might take months. It might take years for it to take place. But when you have violence included in the protest, the response is significantly quicker. Individuals are more likely to come to the table in a short period of time and put forth greater policies. So the violence amplifies um, nonviolent um, protests. And this is violent mm. captured, as I've indicated before, in terms of looking at those who are having violence imposed upon them, as well as violence that they are sort of giving um, off. I mean, uh -huh. I wanna, yeah. So this is, this is, you're including in that both Setting a police car on fire, <laughs> I assume. Yes. And yes. also John Lewis getting his head cracked by a policeman's baton. Abs absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I, I look at violence in, in both ways. You know, I individuals yeah. can sit down here and, and, and parse out um, the different forms of violence and, and how bloody things can get on one side versus the other side. But the reality at the end of the day is that you have a, a violent protest that, that's affecting um, individuals. And, and, and it has an ability, as I've indicated before, to, to bring people to the table and to talk about these issues and concerns. And that's what we're seeing what happened with George Floyd, I mean, uh, the George Floyd protests, rather, that individuals are coming to the table and acting. The Democratic Party already is talking about putting forth panels to look at the African-American community. Yeah. You have individuals now want to bring about systematic change in our uh, criminal justice system. Individuals want to look at other bills. You know, I received an email from my children's elementary principal, a white individual, saying we need to talk more about racial and ethnic inequality. He sent it out to all parents uh, at the elementary school. The conversation is changing on a real sort of honest way. And, and so that's what we're, we're seeing. And, and that is not because another protest occurred. And we've been seeing protests since, since Ferguson. But this protest is more yeah. contentious. It's, it's, it's a little more raw. Uh, it's a little more chaotic. But nationwide. people are talking. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is nationwide. And it's, you know, it, this isn't just something that's occurring in one or two cities, yeah. which is an important point that you, that you, that you bring up. Because if you look at the 67 to 68 riots, which people sometimes refer to to say, you know, that led to Nixon coming into um, office, mm -hmm. 
those protests were not nearly as widespread as the protests that we're seeing today. And, yeah. and I always argue that protest has the ability to influence individuals who are most, um, who are closest to the protest and closest proximity. And this is why with the Rodney King riots, Maxine Waters acted very forcefully because it was occurring in her backyard. But now right. these protests are occurring in everyone's backyard. It's occurring for every single <laughs> congressional member. So they have to act. They have to act. Right. Well, and, and I think that's a good point that I saw that in your uh, in in some of your past work that Maxine Waters, for instance, like I don't have a memory of the 1992 riots. I was too young. Um, I remember the years afterwards. Right. Um, and right. I remember the way that people talked about it. Um, right. And it was almost talked about, you know, less as a protest and more as a riot, as like people people just going nuts and burning burning stuff down. Right. Regardless yeah. of what actually happened. But you point out how, no, even that, which we would sort of think as a maximally violent event, like led to yeah. actual change to some degree. Yeah, it definitely led to change in the way in which Maxine Waters spoke about those um, events was just masterfully. Uh, I love the way that she referred to them. And she referred to them as righteous anger. Um, mm. and she, she, I don't want to call them riots. I want to call them righteous anger. And people were frustrated and upset. And it did lead to um, policy change. Even El, um, the Los Angeles Police Department uh, changed the way in which they held tenure for police officers. We saw the change in Congress with Maxine Waters introducing bills uh, dealing with housing and infrastructure and employment. These were specific concerns voiced by protesters as well. And uh, as I've indicated, you see the president of the United States coming and putting forth rhetoric that is sympathetic. He also tries. Now, he, he, he sort of... Uh, he doesn't quite deliver as much on this, but he tries to put forth a weed and feed program donating or, or putting forth $19 million to um, address um, drugs in the area and to improve the community. It didn't quite pan out the way he had hoped, but he had good intentions. And he specifically said that was in response to the protest activity that we saw with the Rodney King, um, Rodney King riot. This is George H.W. Bush. Yes. The, the the first. Yes. First push. Yeah. And, and it makes me think that like here in here in Los Angeles, you know, we have uh, one of the one of the least responsive city councils and mayors to, to public protest of any kind. You know, the, the yeah. city council almost uh, sees activists asking for something as being a reason not to do it. <laughs> like in general, <laughs> if you listen to the way they talk about you start calling their office and they're like, oh, well, if we're not going to do it just because you say so, we're going to keep doing what we were doing. But yesterday, the city council and the mayor announced that they were going to look for $150 million, $150 million in cuts in the LAPD budget. And now that's a very small cut. That's 3% of yeah. their total $3 billion budget. But you know, one of the main uh, uh, demands that the protesters are making are to defund the police and to see them make even that amount of change after a week of protests really made me say, wow, these really did work. I mean, the, it, they moved the boulder a tiny bit, at least, and a boulder that I literally thought was completely immovable because of the power that, you know, the police union and and uh, the tough on crime attitude has among the elected officials. As like as a political yeah. reality, they'll never they'll never reduce the LAPD budget. And to see them do it even a little bit is such a massive change. 
Um, yeah. And yeah. Th the other funny thing I saw yesterday was a friend of mine sent me this uh, this image that had been forwarded around that someone's been sending around L.A. that says, please pass this on. Please forward to friends. This is in contrast to what's happening in the streets right now. It said, peaceful, silent protest from home. This Wednesday at June 3rd at 9 p.m. for exactly 8 minutes and 46 seconds, let's go outside our homes and shine a flashlight into the sky. That's the <laughs> amount of time that Floyd has had a knee on his neck pleading for his life. So let's all go outdoors and shine our flashlights at the sky to show that we don't want more violence. We want change. Let's light up L.A. with this peaceful form of protest. And I read that. It's like, this is ludicrous. That's not a protest. You're literally shining your flashlights at the one place where no one can see them. <laughs> like you, flashlights don't reflect off the sky. Who is this for? Who's going to see this? And like, who is that's a very, you know, quote, peaceful, popularly approved you know, I'm sure the mayor is totally fine with that sort of form of protest because it puts no pressure on him, right? But like, absolutely, yeah. That that yeah. that that dichotomy really struck me. If that was all people did, the LAPD budget wouldn't be getting cut by 150 million dollars, right? I, I think you're right, Adam. But yeah, I I I want to say that there is a before I become critical of them. Let me just say that. <laughs> Uh, there is a place for that, right? You know, there, yeah. there there is a place for individuals to push back as they see fit, to mm. um, voice their disdain or, or their contempt in the way that they see fit. And, it, you know, it might be um, engaging in uh, marching. Um, uh, it might be sit-ins. It, it, it might be demonstration. And then again, it could be flashlights or it could be tweets it, it, it could be boycotts mm -hmm. in which you decide not to buy um, um uh, products and so every aspect of the movement can be helpful that being said when you are talking about monumental change taking place it's going to be tough for a flashlight to move the needle <laughs> <laughs> you you, you kind of need to inconvenience someone you need to make a problem for someone and whether that's Setting a police car on fire, which is, you know, I think right on the edge there where, look, I, I obviously don't want anybody kill, be killed at a protest, Absolutely. right? There's a form Absolutely. of violence that I would say I'm yeah. not happy with. Yeah. Setting a police car on fire, I'm like, hey, this is symbolic property damage, you know, and this is this is the point that's trying to be made. And I don't know exactly how I feel about it, but it starts to feel, yeah. you know, but um, even something as simple as like, you know, the uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, hey, they were blocking traffic. You know what yeah. I mean? They were getting in somebody's way. They were causing a problem for somebody. And uh, and it seems like that is necessary. Like you need to fuck up the system a little bit in order to make any change happen. It, it, do you feel that way? Is that the case? You definitely have to create a crisis situation. I feel that way. King feels that way. That's exactly what he referred to when he's talking mm. about um, um, Birmingham. And that crisis situation can um, come in multiple um, ways, but it can't just simply be passive sitting at home, um, clicking, uh, I don't know, having Twitter fingers saying this is wrong. You, know, you mm -hmm. need to sometimes be out there in the streets um pushing back now that can take multiple forms but you, you you need to actually put boots on the ground and say hey we're not taking this anymore now i was talking to my wife this morning and i said something to her that i uh, i want to repeat and that is sometimes the response can amplify 
the cause. And by that, I mean, if you see this violence that's occurring to the black community on almost a day-to-day basis and you do nothing, you just sit down with it or you say, well, yeah, that's just another mundane death or another incident. The individuals believe that this is okay, that this is the norm, that it is the status quo that we can learn to live with. But if you push back, if you get out into the streets and you have a chaotic situation that ends up with a crisis-like environment, the cause of why you're pushing back is now amplified. Now we care about Black Lives Matter. Now we care about the Mm -hmm. issues that individuals are are voicing. And so the response that we've seen with the George Floyd protest has amplified the cause that racial and ethnic minorities have been trying to advocate for years. Yeah, I look, I have to say, uh, you know, I'm gonna admit this and, and I'm a little bit ashamed of it. When I first saw, you know, the first pieces of news about George Floyd's killing, you know, my, my initial reaction was, oh, man, another one of these. Well, I got a lot of work to do today. You, you know what I mean? Like, I, I was like, I, I'm not going to watch the video. Yeah. I, I got yeah. a lot going on. Yeah. There was just no. one of these uh, Ahmaud Arbery's no. case a few a few no. weeks prior. No, no. A little bit the same reaction was when you see a school shooting. Right. You're, yeah. You sort of go, wow, that's terrible. Got to get on yeah. with my day. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until that movement like started right. that I really took hold of my own feeling in myself of like, no, yeah, this isn't fucking okay. Um, and, uh, and joined that movement as best I could with what I had. Like it, it, we needed that. Like the, when Friday night, last Friday night, I saw rubber bullets fired at protesters in LA, something changed for me, um, in the way I thought about the entire issue. Yeah, absolutely. This jolted, the American people, the largely non-African Americans, in particular, the white community to say, hey, this is wrong, in the international community to say, hey, this is wrong. I mean, and you're not, I think, alone in seeing that video and saying to yourself, yeah, this is kind of the another video showing mm-hmm. the death of a black man. Many in the black community have felt the same way. I mean, there's a mm. lot of times in which I receive videos and I just say to myself, I can't watch this now. I, I'm, I'm going to watch it. But if I watch it now, I'm going to have the same just raw, desperate emotions that we're almost hopeless walking around here. Um, and so I'll I put it aside to watch it another day. And then I get to it and I watch it and I feel exactly the way I expect it to feel. Horrible about the situation. The African-American community has been feeling horrible for a very long time time. You know, many people ask me, hey, Dan, how are you doing today? And my response to them is about the same I was feeling last week um, when I had saw previous (laughs) videos. This is this is this is not (laughs) as new and as novel to the black community. If anything, I feel more hopeful today because at least today I have more people involved in this discussion. I have more allies saying, listen, we need to do something about this. I have more people in government listening and wanting to put forth policies. So if if, if nothing else, I feel better. It's almost like I was getting beat up. I went and told my (laughs) brother, he came in. I know chaos is gonna take place because a fight's gonna take place, but he's fighting on my behalf now. Yeah. And so I'm 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 dainty, you know? I'm I'm very hopeful about what um the future holds. Well, uh, it's really wonderful to hear that. Um yeah, I mean I've spent the last week feeling so 
tense and disheartened so much of the time um, mm-hmm. because you know you go on social media now and it's just image after image of the police abusing people right the police right. just throwing protesters to the ground uh, yeah, I'm sure you saw the clip, uh, one of the most viral clips of the, the police rolling up to the store in Van Nuys where the, the family had called the police to stop the store from being looted. And then the police yeah. arrest the family who owns the store. And the, yeah. the TV crew is there yes. going, don't arrest them. What? No, those the looters are getting away. Those are the victims. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you sit and yeah. watch that. And there's curfews in every city. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. so upsetting. And then yeah. I started to realize, hold on a second. What we're seeing now is the mass broadcast of millions of images of the exact issue that's being protested. This, the, these protests have brought the image so directly to the fore in, in yeah. this vivid way where you can't watch this and think, when you watch it, you have to think, oh my gosh, yes, the police are an abusive, like, uh, paramilitary army that is plaguing our cities. There's no other way to watch those images without thinking that. For sure, individuals' eyes have been open. And so some of the mundane actions that we might have put off as being, hey, you know, police officers got to uphold the law. They got to do what they have to do. Now people are taking a more critical look at those incidents and saying, hey, is this another incident of police brutality or police overreacting or police doing the wrong thing? We now have a different perspective, a perspective I think that will guide us and bring about racial progress in America. Even the way that we look at protests themselves have become more tolerable, if you will. I mean, you think about Colin Kaepernick, right? I mean, they, individuals, just spurred vitriol to him when Mm -hmm. he was taking a knee into anyone else. And there was a lot of just hatred. Now individuals would love for protesters to just take a knee or for NFL players to uh, take a knee. Everyone except probably Drew Brees. He did apologize for that. But, you know, it's um, but it, it, it is the case that now um, the way in which individuals see the, the pushback is different. And there will always be those who just are critical of progress. You, were, you had individuals who were critical of King and the way in which he engaged yeah. with certain people who said, don't go to that lunch counter. You got your own restaurant, your own lunch counter. You have your own bathroom. You have your own school. Stay in your own neighborhoods. If you come into our neighborhoods, you come into our areas, you're doing nothing but inciting violence and chaos. Stay where you are. And so and you, you, you have that same storyline taking place now in which individuals are critical of protesters just engaging in simple pushing back of the system. And it's unfortunate, but it is also a hopeful story because as I said before, we've seen this movie and uh, it has a happy ending. It does indeed. Uh, that is a really wonderful sentiment to take us to our break. I got to read a couple ads, but I can't wait to get back and talk more with Daniel Gillian. We'll be right back.
So, Daniel, uh, right before the break, you mentioned, and I wanted to get to this, about how Martin Luther King in his time was also vilified um, in the in the yes. press by many parts of society. And I've read that, that, you know, oh, this guy's he's an instigator and he's an anarchist and and that sort of language. I wonder if you could can you speak to that uh, anymore at all? Like if if, th- if that's a clearer parallel that we might think it is. Yeah, I can definitely speak to that. King, for sure, had to push back against the system. Um, and, and his mantra of nonviolence was something that he wanted to put forth. But he also realized that in engaging in nonviolence in ways in which you potentially are breaking the law, a law that you didn't believe in at this time, um, would lead to violent, chaotic, and vitriol being put against you. And so when he would attempt to um, protest within the civil rights movement, there were many in the white community who would see this and say, this is absolutely wrong. But you know, I would say too, that it wasn't just pushback coming from the white community. There were actually many individuals in the black church Mm. that would encourage King not to engage in these protests, Mm. Uh, that this was not the way that God wanted them to bring about um, uh, change. And, and, And so, he had to fight a little within um, his own ranks, within the his own community, and, and and sometimes he engaged in action that they did not condone or were not um, persuaded by. Um, yet he persisted, and that is absolutely what's taking place right now. You know, I've heard rhetoric from Andrew Young and John Lewis who have been somewhat critical of aspects of the protests. And I I say, you you, got to listen at some point to these individuals. They were on the front lines. They Mm -hmm. know what were successful. They they have the um, battle scars to to prove it. Uh, But alongside that, uh, we also have to allow this generation to find their own way. And in doing so, it, it might require us to not be as critical, to be more in, encouraging, to direct them, but to direct them in a way that is um, in, in encouraging because they might take a different path, but their destination will be the same, and that is racial progress. So I want to know if, given your broad view of protests in America and American yeah. history, um, I know you, you're, you're putting this what the events of this week in historical context and telling us they're not as new as we think they are, right? However, they're also different than the other protests that have happened in my lifetime. You know, I think about, for instance, the Women's March, which was, you know, right after uh, Trump's inauguration, was massive, Mm -hmm. but had a very different character. It was almost like a celebration in a way. There wasn't even any marching. I went to the one in LA, we all stood in the street and then eventually wandered home because there was, it was so (laughs) many people Right. And and it was I don't even remember seeing many cops. Right. Um, And uh, I also think about, say, Ferguson. Right. Much more localized, for instance, in it's in this one area, even though it's the exact same issue. Um, And so I'm looking at what is different about this that caused it to take on this particular character. Is it obviously differences with. uh, you know, the community that's being affected that we're talking about. Is there something right. to do with the fact everyone's been cooped up from COVID-19, for example? Right. Uh, what 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 causes it to take on this character in your view? 
I think there's a combination of factors that caused it to be slightly different in, in, in a way that leads to this immense response. The first is the actual video. You watch that tape, it's heart-wrenching. The police officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck for an extended period of time, but it wasn't the actual literal knee. The knee on his neck was symbolic of much of the discussion had in the black community of the white man keeping the black man down. And in this case, we're literally seeing this manifest itself in real time, right before our eyes. As George Floyd becomes so submissive that he screams out for his mother, it is a horrific experience and anyone that has a heart or a soul sees that and is moved by it and says that something has to take place. So the video was one aspect. The, mm-hmm. the, the second aspect um, for sure is the contentious nature. I mean, you have protests that involve arrests, involve cops, involves um, violence of individuals being injured and being hurt. You've had deaths occur. Uh, I actually um, rank protests and I mm. quantify them by the content that they have. Uh, so whether or not a protest has more than 100 people, whether or not it lasts for more than a day, whether or not it has violence. And so when I talk about the impact of protests, I really do a deep dive. In comparing this protest to other protests, it has it all. The It's large, it lasts for a long period of time. It yeah. has multiple um, individuals involved, cops are present, injuries, death. And so that context, amplifies the movement and it's taking place on a national and international stage. I mean, you have protests that are occurring in Berlin and Toronto and London, you name it. And And it's front page news in all those countries too. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, people are talking about these um, issues in ways they haven't spoken about them before, but it's because of the type of protest that we're seeing um, in America. Uh, so, so, so it's it's different in that way, and some might say that it is also the cooped up feeling we've had with the coronavirus, and part of that could play a role um, as as well. But yeah, I don't want to give that too much credit. The reality mm-hmm. is, is that if if you look at that tape and don't feel as though you have to do something, then there's nothing mm-hmm. inside you. I wonder as well if there's some, and by the way, certainly I agree with that, yeah. um, uh, uh, that the tape is almost, uh, it's one of those things where I had to keep clicking through random segments because I couldn't bear to watch more than five seconds at a time. You know, like I saw the whole thing, but I yeah. just like watching it beginning to end is is so difficult. Um, but I also wonder if part of, like part of what seems so special about this is, again, the protest is against the very people who are lining up in a phalanx against the protest, right? It's a protest about policing, about abusive policing, and the police are there, and their reaction seems different, you know? Like, it's not like during the Women's March, there were a lot of men walking around grabbing all the women by the, by the, you know what I mean? Like, like doing, yes. like, yes. like saying, we're going to hold on a second. We men are under attack. We have to go perpetrate the exact same thing that's being protested. Yet that's right. what's happening in our cities. You, you sort of feel that 
To me, it seems as though the police are acting defensively and violently in order to protect their sovereignty and the unquestioned nature of their power. And that's part of what is bringing this to a head in a way that that feels unique to me. I, I, I wonder if you agree with that or if you have another view. I do to an extent, right? Mm. Because we, we for sure, I I love your analogy about the women's movement. And- <laughs> It's not like because I think that's absolutely right, and, and, and we're seeing um, sort of a different situation, right, with um, the George Floyd protests. The individuals are pushing back against police, but the police are policing them. Uh, how you have also seen um, individuals, police officers, kneel down with protesters, walk with protesters, talk to them, and mm-hmm. that is also different than what we've seen in the past, and it is encouraging. But, but, but. To your point, though, about the policing and, you know, you're pushing back against individuals you're policing. I think our our president is amplifying um, some of Mm. that contention with his actions. You know, in my book, I call it the loud minority. It comes from uh, it's a play on words from Richard Nixon's The Silent Majority, in which he tried to encourage those individuals who weren't pushing back against Vietnam to join him. He saw a sign that said, bring the boys home. Um, And he told the American people, don't listen to that protester. I need you, the silent majority, those who aren't protesting, to stand with me. And Mm -hmm. and that fell out of usage because it had a racial bend to it. The majority of individuals coming home from Vietnam were brown and black individuals. They, They were coming home disproportionately in body bags. And so it fell out of usage until we saw it again when none other than Donald Trump was running for office in 2015 and 2016. He actually made it into a saying, you could actually go on to Amazon and buy a sign that says, the silent majority stands with Trump for the low price mm. of, I think, $4.76. It had two <laughs> thumbs up, I actually um, believe. Uh, and, and, and so he wanted to bring that notion of, of galvanizing the silent majority back to life. Um, he stopped using it a little bit during his time in office, but he just tweeted the other day, the silent majority uh, needs to um, push back. And so when he looks at protests, especially those protests that are not supportive of him, Donald Trump has a very negative reaction to protest activity and his willingness to really clamp down on these protests by trying to enlist the military and having troops in our towns, that escalates the situation. Um, And and, and I think that it uh, makes that contention even worse. Well, let's bring this to to national politics, because I'd love to talk about how the protest is viewed uh, you know, through now our extremely polarized uh, lens. I mean, not to say that in Nixon's day, right, uh, the yeah. country was less politically polarized. It was still very polarized around the issue of, of race. Um, yeah. But uh, today, you know, we've got these separate media ecosystems. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you have any view on how, uh, you know, how the protest is playing in the various parts of the American psyche and and what effects you think it might have as a result. I've noticed that the right wing, for instance, uh, right wing media in the past, like with Mike Brown, they would do, oh, he was asking for it. He he was, you know, uh, no angel himself, that sort of rhetoric. In this case, it's very much 
oh, this is this the murder of George Floyd was horrible. However, the protests are nothing but violent looting um, yeah. is, is yes. sort of what's playing. Uh, I wonder what your view is. When you look at the national media, for sure, in this polarized society we live in, there are two narratives <laughs> that's forming. Um, the first narrative uh, on the liberal side is that the violence to George Floyd, that death, that murder was wrong, but it also was related to race. Individuals can understand, sympathize with the protesters, even if they aren't completely supportive of some of the more violent aspects of it. But they realize that a, a discussion on race has to be had. In my eyes, when I sit and listen to the conservative perspective, it is, as you've indicated, yes, this is wrong. George Floyd should not have died. The police should not have behaved in that way. But let's keep it moving. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. not, hey, we need to do something about this. And what's definitely, what's definitely not happening is an honest discussion about race. If you listen to the conservative perspective, rarely do they link what, is ha what has happened to George Floyd to an aspect of race. Uh, aspect of racial inequality. They just look at it as an isolated case where a police was behaving poorly. Bad not apple. A, yeah, a bad apple. Not a systematic problem that, 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 that goes along the lines of racial bias and racial inequality in America. And their unwillingness to at least acknowledge what most of America sees is pragmatic. Now, the way in which we see, I think, a response taking place among voters is, is really interesting. In the past, I've analyzed the way in which racial and minority protests and other protests have an effect upon electoral politics, and it's fascinating. When you look at minority protests, they have the ability to link up with other liberal protests. And when they do, then they're able to mm. persuade and mobilize liberal voters. The same thing can take place on the conservative side, but we just happen to be in a four-year time period in which we've seen some of the greatest protests in generations. You yeah. had thousands of protests take place with the Women's um, March. You also had protests pushing back against guns in our schools, protests on immigration, and now you're seeing protests on race. You're talking about a blue wave coming. There's a blue tsunami that is coming to the electorate that will have a, an influence. And it not only influences how individuals turn out to the polls, but it influences whether or not individuals decide to donate resources. Campaign mm -hmm. contributions actually increase on the liberal Democratic side when you have liberal protests. The individuals yeah. who decide to run for office also changes. And then, of course, electoral outcomes, they also um, change. So protest has a rippling effect on the electoral process. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you what effect you thought this might have on the upcoming election. It sounds like you've just said what you think that is. <laughs> it, it will have, I think, uh, a very strong impact. Uh, and, and that impact is measurable. Uh, you look at the protests that occurred in Minneapolis in 2016 that dealt with Black Lives Matter. You know, it, you know. Sometimes I say what we're seeing, it's it's different, but it it continues a narrative that the African American community has had to deal with. So we saw protests pushing back against police violence in 2016. In 2016, 
the majority, well, not the majority, but there was a large portion of the African-American community who did not turn out and vote. Fewer people turned out to vote in the black community in 2016 than they did in 2012. And that's somewhat understandable. President Obama wasn't on the ticket in 2016. So mm -hmm. there was like this enthusiasm gap. However, in the places in which we saw Black Lives Matter protests occur, protests didn't drop. It actually increased. In Minneapolis, it jumped up almost 3%. In Philadelphia here, it also jumped up 3%, wow. in which you saw a lot of Black Lives Matter protests. Now, you take that, in which Black Lives Matter protests, they were protesting in a lot of different places, but the protests were not as contentious and as dynamic as they are right now. You take that and you compare it to today and imagine what the outcome is going to be. I think individuals are going to turn out to vote, and I don't think that's going to be for the benefit of those individuals who do not support the causes of the protesters. Now, what that leads me to as a question, though, is, you know, right now it's a very we're in the hot zone, you know, in terms of how we feel about uh, this issue and these protests right now. Things are very hot. It uh and we're we're coming up to a presidential election, um, uh, which is also the, you know naturally has the highest turnout, right? Yeah. Um, but what do you think are the, the prospects are? Uh, you know, eighteen months from now, <laughs> on mm. this on this issue, right? Um, like protests can only be sustained so long, and I'm starting to have that feeling of. You know, I'm, we're in the middle of it. I'm like, okay, everything feels different now. There feel like a lot of different possibilities. Like I said, in L.A. here, I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to cut the LAPD budget at all? Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. What else is possible? What else yeah. can we do? I, ho I, I hope this continues. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, hold on a second. These moments come and go, right? And what are things going to be like in 18 months? Um, and right. do the people in power just need to wait it out? Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do, how do you feel about that? How do, how do protests... How can protests create a lasting impact? That's a great question because sometimes individuals want change tomorrow. They want it the next week, the next mm -hmm. month. And sometimes it takes time, but we don't want it to take too long because if it takes too long for them to be changed, then, you know, the American people have a short term memory. Yeah, this is well, why they don't live uh, that long. It's like the the, it's right. the James Baldwin in, uh, in interview that was making the rounds, and he says, "How long do you want me to wait? I'm old. I'm gonna die soon." And then he died pretty soon after that. Like you know, That's a yeah, yeah. This is this is right. People people also don't live long enough. But you, when when you look at the impact of protest at the beginning stage and in the immediate aftermath, you have to hope that that response is a powerful response because that response can plant seeds for something that's greater. So if you have politicians that are introducing bills that look to reform the criminal justice system, and I'm not talking about just giving lip service, but actual concrete bills that would look to help the racial and ethnic minority community or bills that address education in our schools along the lines of race or looking to address changing uh, changes in the police department and the way that they behave and the way that they conduct business you put those bills forth and those bills are passed then what you're doing is you're setting us up for the future now we're no longer talking about the first bill the same way we're no longer today talking about the first civil rights bill or the first the first voting rights bill we're now tweaking 
a policy that's already been put in place. So the hope is, is that immediate following, immediately following protests, that there is something substantial. And then we just continue to build and work on that initial um, seed. I'm curious if you can speak to what role protests play in American history, like, like in a broad way. Yeah. Like, is this... Uh, you know, we have these uh, stories of the civil rights movement, of these protest movements. Yeah. Do you feel that we have a special relationship uh, with protest movements in this country? You know, we have a very special relationship with protest movement, and but it's different de depending upon what community you're in. I mm -hmm. think if you are in the black community, it is our go-to political tool. And, and that's yeah. because the majoritarian constructs like elections, which is a majoritarian tool in, in democracy, an understandable uh, one, but it's majoritarian or public opinion. It's a majoritarian construct. You you tr oftentimes look at results in which the majority feels this is the case. So right. minorities often struggle to have their voice heard. And that's why protest is the go to tool. So there's a the black community embraces protests. Uh, however, I think the white community sometimes sees protests as a nuisance, as a, a unruly behavior, as, oh my gosh, here they go again. They mm -hmm. can't just be happy with what they have. Um, and so there's a, a more uh, a combative relationship when you step outside the black community when looking at um, protests. Then there are these moments, and they aren't often. Sometimes they happen after the fact, but there are these moments in which Everyone comes together and says, you know, this is appropriate. Individuals should be pushing back. Enough yeah. is enough. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now. We're experiencing a moment right now in which major aspects of society are speaking in unison. And they're saying to themselves, enough is enough. We stand with you. We support these protests um that are that are occurring in this nation and so we're all on the same page today now th this sort of um honeymoon period will not last uh <laughs> you fast forward maybe three or four months i mean even when the um, nfl season starts back up if um individuals <laughs> <laughs> individuals might take knees and people might push back but um i'm gonna I'm relish this moment because at this at this very moment right here we are all on the same team. We're all in the same choir. We're all speaking with the same voice, and it's beautiful. I, I really do feel that way. Um, I mean, even you know, I I called my parents, uh, who are you know white baby boomers, right, and yeah. Yeah. and talked about what's going on, and and you know they emphasized a little bit more than I would, like oh, there's looting and there's violence and things like that, and I was yeah. sort of trying to figure out, feel them out, see how they feel about it, and then they said. Well, but there's like a real injustice here. Like this is yeah. <laughs> like they're they're protesting against racism and it's and it's a real problem and we need to change it despite that, uh, you know, us feeling a little bit different, uh, despite us looking at the protests in slightly different ways. We were on the same page about it. And I do feel that that large parts of the country are on that page. Absolutely. You know, I think. You're not, your parents aren't the only ones that's doing that. It's, it, it's, but your parents' actions are so encouraging because it speaks to how widespread this movement 
has mm -hmm. become and how influential it has become. But, but you also look at um, corporations, for example. I mean, I can't tell you how many emails I've received from companies that I use who are saying, hey, we believe that this is wrong. We, we, you know, we stand with individuals that are looking to push back. Um, you, you got messages from Nike and shoe companies. And Nintendo put one out. As, <laughs> as you're playing your games here, honey, yeah. but you, <laughs> you see these messages. Mario's <laughs> like, uh, it's a me. I support Black Lives Matter. <laughs> this is right. This is right. And, and, and that's a good thing. We want, we, we want everyone. Um, 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 to be speaking in unison, saying that this yeah. is wrong, whether it's the black community, the older generation, um, individuals in middle America, um, white individuals on the West Coast, um, Latinos, or the Mario Brothers. We we want to all be <laughs> on the same uh, plumbers page from Brooklyn. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's uh, beautiful. It is beautiful. You keep giving me perfect ending points for this podcast, but I got a couple more questions for you because you're such a delight to talk to. So I'm going to need you at some point to to give us a rousing, positive ending one more time later on. But I, I do want to okay. ask, uh, given again that you, you you study protest movements, something I'm so curious about is the difference in the way that the media and the public viewed the uh, the protest that we saw back in April where you had uh, white Americans in, you know, going to Huntington Beach and uh, saying, mm. you know, open up COVID-19. I want to get a haircut is the way they were caricatured, right? <laughs> but we got to put America back. This is tyranny, da-da-da-da-da, which yeah. were much, much smaller, but got a huge amount of uh, very, very positive press coverage, even though there were a lot of sort of frightening, you know, violent, semi-violent elements to them, people bringing, you know, open carry rifles to state houses and things like that. And you saw a lot of response to them in the government. I mean, a lot of ways it seemed like that was a turning point in California in how the governor and the mayors talked about uh, the COVID-19 closure as a result of a couple yeah. dozen, uh, you know, white folks showing up to uh, the, you know, Huntington Beach City Hall or whatever. That was how it looked to me. I, I wonder how it looked to you. Well, first of all, I'll say that no one or no group has a monopoly on protest. Mm -hmm. This tool is very effective um, across um, races and groups and countries. And so uh, you saw many individuals who likely were pushing a, a more conservative agenda to open up and it forced individuals to, to listen. It, even it got worked. attention of, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. It worked and uh, it, it brought people to the, to the table. So I see that as a hopeful positive thing because i like it when individuals are able to bring about change mm -hmm. when they feel as though they don't have a voice that being said though when you look at some of those protests even within those protests you could see racial and ethnic inequality for example the individuals who went into the michigan state house fully guarded with uh armed rather um to the t with weapons standing and shouting down police officers was a sight to behold because I can only imagine if the tables were turned and African Americans were guarded with or armed with um, weapons shouting yeah. down police officers with uh, within the state house, 
there would have been some violence that broke out and it would not have come from yeah. the African-American um, community. It's almost a form of white privilege to be able to protest in certain ways that African-Americans cannot protest in. I mean, I think one aspect of the reason why King had a nonviolent pushback was that he was a black man. And, and at that time, the way that you push back can't be the same way that your white neighbor pushes back. Mm. And that mm -hmm. still exists today. Yeah. The way in which African-Americans can talk to police officers, even me, I walk down the street, I'm very conscientious of what I say when I see officers uh, and, and how I behave. And I try and tell my kids, I have two black boys, to be conscientious of their actions. But as a black man, you have to be mindful of this when you engage with police officers. And I think many times um, white America does not have that same fear and they can push back to a greater extent than the black community. Yeah, uh, I saw really striking uh, retweeted yesterday uh, a tweet by uh, Ibram X. Kendi, hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, mm. um, about uh, from April saying, imagine if it was black folks taking to the streets, demanding their freedom. They would send out the National Guard. Trump would rage on Twitter. And I was like, oh, my God, he saw the future. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what an incredible gift of prescience. And then I was like, well, actually... Yeah, I, I think I understand. I think I know why he was able to predict the future, you know, but but it was uh, he, he understood something about American society that that maybe I was a little bit more slow on the uptake for. But um, that's really uh, it, it's really striking. I mean, those those differences are so clear and obvious to, to us right now. They're, they're in such sharp relief. And maybe that is the point that you're making, that that is what protest does for yeah. us is it throws those things into sharp relief. So they're unignorable. Absolutely. It, it, it forces us to sit down and ask the tough questions. Protest is able to influence the way that we think about these issues. So, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about this. I see so much um, hand wringing from my white friends on social media of, mm. of, of how do I help? How do I help? You know, obviously. <laughs> You know, there's folks joining the protest as well, but there's many folks yeah. who who uh, can't or or uh, uh, not able to. Um, and so they're they're like, what what do I do? And they're posting memes of, oh, what if I do this or I donate to that? You should donate to that. Um, and I'm curious what you feel again, talking about uh, the political power of this movement and what adds power to it. Uh, what do you feel adds power to it? What can folks at home be doing? Uh -oh. Folks at home can contribute in their own ways, you know, at a very sort of per, at a very personal level. They can become more conscientious and aware of the inequalities that exist. I mean, at some point in time, we have to come to the realization that racial inequality exists in America. Now, that's a simple statement, but it's a statement in which there's a vast swab of America who does not agree and is not willing to acknowledge that that's the case. Before we can begin to change, we have to realize we got a problem and stop walking around as though the emperor is wearing clothes. The emperor yeah. does not have any clothes on. 
And if we know that we're naked, then we know that we can dress ourselves with greater policies that address racial inequality. But it begins on on, on the individual basis with individuals saying to themselves, yeah, there's a problem happening here um, in America. And individuals can not only improve the way in which they see it, but how they also talk about it in in day-to-day conversations. Um, You know, with social media right now, individuals have the veil of anonymity that they can go on and say the the darnest things to 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 people. Yeah. Uh, it, it is you know sometimes it's it's tough, but that that sort of the dialogue that we have with one another, whether it's social media or it's face to face, that has to um, change. Uh, you know, it's a situation in which now, as I've said before, people ask me, "Hey, Dan, how are you doing?" Because now there's an awakening. I realize that you are struggling in America in ways that I did not understand. And that realization should bring about greater discussions with one another. And we should have those discussions with one another. Uh, I think what the principal did at my kid's school was very important to have this discussion you know, among parents. That's a that's a that's a major um, wow. that's a major it's a major change. And and you know, I, I also feel too that some of these little forms of activism might not be huge you know the the putting a flashlight up into the sky is not a <laughs> a big a big thing it's not going to change the world um as we see it at least i i don't think just that one action will um but it is the the, the small things that add up in yeah. society oftentimes when we look at protests we say to ourselves Oh, we want that next major bill. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't come. But it doesn't mean that the impact of protest hasn't been widespread and has changed societal conversations. And it's changed the way in which governors and politicians and presidents are speaking about these things. And mm-hmm. so when individuals are pushing back and when individuals want to stand with racial and ethnic minorities with this particular cause, they can do it in their own way. And I don't want to belittle or put down any sort of form of activism you want to engage in if you want to go ahead and rip up white paper because you think it's too white (laughs) maybe it should be brown Uh, then um go ahead do do that that's that's your form of expression your form of pushing back and 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 i'm there with you so i i love that because there's been so much if i can you know in addition to what's been happening in the streets The conversation that we've been having has been so much about what is the appropriate form of protest, right? In the media, it's, oh, is violence appropriate? We've talked extensively about that. On social media, it's like, is it okay? Is the blacks posting a black square, is that good or bad? I don't know. Like, what do I do? Um, And and you have, it sounds like you have a very inclusive view of it. It's the, it's the collected, it's this, this collective mobilization. It's all forms of protest together as loud as possible that are that are moving the needle here. Absolutely. It is the individual who is walking down the street with a banner saying Black Lives Matter. It is yeah. the individual who is also probably burning a police car. It's the individual sitting home in their bed, cuddled up and just tweeting, oh, this is wrong. I can't believe you. It is all of us contributing together as a society pushing back that allows for the movement to become a movement. Actually, protest 
is simply the actions of going out, hitting the grounds, but a movement requires more than just those actions. It requires a, even a change of thought, the way that we conceive of the world. That is what's taking place right now is that more people have joined the movement. And that's, that's, that's powerful. It's the, man, you're making me see it in a completely different way because it's the change in the world that we're trying to effectuate is obviously important. The change in us, though, is like what we can contribute. Like absolutely. That, yeah. Absolutely. We can change. We, 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 we aren't politicians. Uh, we, we're not Supreme Court justices. We have to do what we can do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I have probably a little more um, wiggle room to affect the minds because I am at a, a, a Ivy League school and can talk to students on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you are just an average Joe, the way that you talk to your kids, the way that you talk to your spouse, the way that you talk to yourself, like how do you see things and say to yourself, man, you know, this is probably not the way that I should perceive this. All of that matters. And you know, what's beautiful about, I think, these moments uh, in history in which you have protests is that it becomes very informative and educational. Oftentimes, many in um, the community are not aware of the injustices taking place. They, they don't realize the yeah. disparity or the level of disparity. There are times in which I don't even realize the level of disparity that occurs in the um, black community. But when protest um, shines a spotlight on these issues, especially racial and ethnic minority concerns, we educate ourselves and we educate ourselves about, uh, about educational inequality, educate ourselves about housing inequality, educate ourselves about police brutality. And from that education now, of course, we'll become better people. Of course, we're going to be more cognizant of, of what's going on because now we're informed that it exists. It has been incredible to talk to you. Uh, uh, you have given me, made me feel so hopeful about what it has been a very confusing, chaotic week. Uh, and you've put it into such wonderful historical perspective and, and yeah. future forward looking perspective as well. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being here, and uh, I hope, I know you said before we started rolling that you're doing a lot of other media today, and I want you to go do it and, and bring the things that you're saying to as many, as many people as possible. I, I definitely will. Thank you so much for having me. If, if I could, I just want to end with this note, and, and that is that um, just one protest, I think, happening in one city on one day can have a rippling effect on the entire electoral process and the policy process, but a social movement bound with multiple protests over multiple mm. days and across multiple cities can lead to a political revolution. And I think that's what we're witnessing now. Hell yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel, for being here. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
Well, thank you once again to Daniel Gillian for coming on the show. I hope you found that conversation as helpful as I did. That is it for us this week on Factually. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. I want to thank our producers, Dana Wickens and Sam Raudman, our engineers, Ryan Connor and Brett Morris, Andrew WK for our theme song. My name's Adam Conover. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media. And until next time, stay curious and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.